You ever drop so many hard stats you have to take a breather because your body can't keep up? Because I think that's just what happened. Yeah, this is like a shonen anime where my body can't contain my powers, my stat powers. This is Chapel Bell Curve, a podcast about football and feelings. I'm Yara. And I'm Nathan. And here we are again, Yara, today to bring you the review of a rambunctious route of the Rebels of Mississippi last Saturday. I'm sorry, I should say Mississippi because Lane Kiffin's their coach. But anyway, we're here to review the Ole Miss game, a, a rambunctious route, actually. I, I stand by that characterization. We are going to be doing this both in the qualitative and quantitative mode. We're going to be talking about our experiences. We're going to bring you some news updates in our qualitative segment. And then we're going to be getting into the stats and the nitty gritty of the actual game and our observations of it. If the people out there would like to get a little bit more involved in listening to this podcast, what can they do there, Yara? If you want to get more involved, you can come check out our Patreon for as little as $1 a month. You can come join a great community of patrons and have access to our unedited unedited show feed, listeners to record live, and more stuff. So come check us out, patreon.com forward slash chapel bell curve. So, Yara, qualitative, off the top, we got some news and notes. I'm very excited today because normally I just bring you Kirby Smart quotes from the press conference, and I got a couple of those, but today I actually have Redcoats news and notes. We have news, we have regional, national news about the Redcoats, and I'm excited to talk about it with you, Yara. It's tea. So, <clears throat> starting out on the football front. Kirby Smart, in his post-game press conference, had a really funny quote about defensive adjustments and how the defense wasn't playing very well in the first two or three drives, and then they kind of tightened up. And they asked him if he'd made any play-calling adjustments, and he said, no real adjustments. The calls we have work. They just have to play them well. Think the two young backers were a little nervous to start the game. They got a third down and long, and they converted. First third down in the game. Should have been off the field. CJ messed up. Raylan had a little boo-boo. Those kids are growing up, really proud of the way they handled things. The fact that he said that like a 220-pound, 19-year-old athlete in the prime of his life had a little boo-boo is hilarious to me. He, he had uh, a boo-boo. Yeah, yeah Raylan, Raylan Wilson had a boo-boo. Blew, blew a coverage. Oh, no. I, I think maybe he that's like a humiliation tactic. He's like, here, take your pacifier, son. Anyway, on Brock Bowers... He said, Kirby, that is, being he, Brock was hell-bent to get it back out there. I knew. I don't know when it was, so don't quote me on it. But I was watching film of practice, and there was a red blur back behind the player I was watching, about 20 yards behind it. It looked like a guy flying across the field. And I was like, who is that? And I was like, oh, my God, it's Brock. I knew that we had a chance then. He's just different. Re- and then I mean, they real. Asked, yeah, he, he's, he's got that dog in him, but it's a different dog. His dog has like machine guns for arms or whatever. And they asked Kirby if Brock had ever thought about going to the NFL and just sitting out the rest of the year. And he said, well, people called him and told him that to leave early for the NFL. Those people will not be representing him. I can promise you that. Boom. Got him, Kirby. And then he said, so, you know, Kirby Smart, I don't know if you know this, Kirby Smart and Lane Kiffin 
are like friends ish. They at least know each other really well. They were on the staff at Alabama at the same time. And he was asking about Lane Kiffin. He was asked about his exchange with Lane Kiffin after the game. And he said, uh, nothing, not a lot to talk about after a game like that. Probably doesn't feel like they played like their best. Frustrated. On to the next. We'll talk this week. Which is funny and probably true, but also feels a little shady to be like, well, what were we going to say to each other? I kicked his ass. And I, I enjoyed that personally. That that I liked that. So we are here. Now for our second part of this new segment, I'm going to talk about Redcoat stuff. So if you're not interested in Redcoat stuff, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast. So <clears throat> I have we have Redcoat stories as normal, but also there's some like Redcoat news. So Pat McAfee was on the college game day set, which was at UGA this week, and he led the crowd twice in the sort of drunk, obnoxious Georgia fan version of the Redcoat band chant. Now, boo, we don't like that. Yara, can you, as a former Redcoat, can you give me just like 15 seconds on like what the, how important the chant is to the identity of the band, like why it matters to you? I think it's just an essential part of the identification of like the Redcoat band and being a Redcoat, you know, like, there's just so much like when you're in redcoats it becomes so much of your identity and so much of your source of pride that like the chant itself is like it means a lot to you you know and even like as a redcoat alum like it still means so much to me and like you gotta say it right you know even when i was a redcoat the chant is something that you Wait, it's so funny because you do the chant in like hostile environments sometimes and you do the chant at people booing at you and it's like an announcement of pride that you're in the band. Yeah. So I guess it's just like, I don't necessarily need people to never do that version of the chant. Like, I guess if they're in the stands and they're drunk or whatever, you can do that. But it's like acting like that is the sort of official version of the chant is not accurate to what the chant is itself. You know what I mean? And it's like, yes. I know that Brett and I have talked about this. Doc, Brett Bauckham, that is the director of the Redcoats, that, you know, there's part of it that the tradition moves on and is going to evolve. And when you put something into a cultural tradition, you don't have full control over it. So I'm not saying that people should never do the drunk, obnoxious Georgia fan version of it but if that's the only one you ever do or you don't know where it comes from you are kind of doing a disservice to the people who made it famous who did it in the first part and this all sort of is coming out because after Pat McAfee does the wrong version of the Redcoat chant on game day twice by the way there was sort of a social media movement on social media about you know former Redcoat saying hey do the right version of the chant damn it and this eventually got moved on to some sports aggregating sites and then a couple of sports websites. I think the one that I found was called Saturday Blitz. And they actually interviewed Brett Bauckham, that is the director. And he had a really good quote about it that I really like. And he said, having probably made up more alternate versions of the chant than anyone in the world, I really don't have a leg to stand on when it comes to criticizing fans. Things evolve. 
but Pat McAfee broadcast that version to the world from our campus on our media partner. That isn't okay with me, and I don't think it should be okay with anyone with skin in the game. There are things finer than a drunken, obnoxious Georgia fan, 440 of them. He was referring, of course, there to the Redcoat band. Bars is He continued on saying, Reese Davis really did his homework on the Clisby Clarks Let the Big Dog Eat, Bauckham continued. For a son of Alabama to be familiar with what I would consider to be an obscure portion of something that was already a deep cut in Georgia lore is really impressive and is yet another example of what I love about the network. The professionals, Reese, Holly Rowe, Chris Fowler, and Kirk Herbstreet, it means so much to me when talent goes to the trouble, whether it's them or an assistant, to make it matter and get it right. God and damn. I think that's, that's there yeah, is smoke yeah. emitting from my laptop right now. Like that was yeah. that was bars. He stands on business all the time. You, one thing you got to know about Brett Bauckham, 100% of the time, he is he is ready to rock. He is ready to roll. He is, he is like exhibit 100% of the time. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not telling you if you're a drunk person to never do the drunk, obnoxious Georgia fan thing. I get it. But it's like, at least acknowledge where it comes from. And like, I I don't know. I know that things evolve. I know that things change. But there actually is are finer things in the land than the drunk, obnoxious Georgia fan. And it's kind of annoying when you do that. Even if you replace drunk and obnoxious with different adjectives, I would be less annoyed by it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's, That's the part fair. that gets me. Yeah. And like, I, I feel comfortable in saying that I can drink the average golf dad from Alpharetta under two tables, not just one. <laughs> and I still am like, come on now, let's be respectful of the people who actually did this. And it's yeah. not like that this this tradition isn't even originally Georgia's. It got brought to Georgia. The original version of the band chant got brought to Georgia by Gary Teske, who had been at Syracuse. And we he just totally took it and changed the words from Syracuse to the Redcoats. That is absolutely a true story. Anyway, that's all I have to say. Do you have anything else to add about it? I mean, okay, so... I guess I'll, I'll get into this a little bit more during like our experiences, but I, Kaylee and I ended up going to the um, student section like line around an hour and a half before the gates open. So like 3.30 and during that and like it for those of you who don't know, the student section like line starts forming right around where Reed Hall and Payne Hall and all that is. And right next to it is a bunch of tailgating, you know, areas I guess is for, I don't know, I don't know if there's like a designation for those people that tailgate, like if you need to like give a certain amount of money or whatever. Yeah, rich people is the answer. Excellence. So there's just a bunch of, there's a bunch of rich people like tailgating and stuff and they, you know, they'll come hang out, they'll like do some stuff. And during the hour and a half that Kaylee and I were in the line, I guess we did the drunk, obnoxious Georgia fan chant like eight or so times. I counted, I lost track at eight times, but you know- like, we, we can do the drunk, obnoxious chant, you know, it's, I'm not mad that it, like, has changed and evolved beyond the origins. Like, y'all want to adapt it to your own personal needs? That's, that's cool. I, it's not my business, but, like, on a national platform, when you, when people are, like, you know, actually doing, when you're, when your coworkers and your peers are doing research on something and, like, getting the lore right, I think you also have to hold that bar and get your lore right. Like, get your facts straight. And especially the fact that he did it twice. Like, do, do it, you know, once, whatever. But, uh, you know, if, if your your coworkers are 
doing the work. You should also do a little bit of work and like Googling that stuff because it's available on UGA websites. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying not. I don't want this to turn into like a Pat McAfee thing. Pat McAfee sucks and represents a lot of what is bad about current sports. And I think what is bad about ESPN writ large. And I don't hate ESPN. I just think that like Pat McAfee represents the insidious uh, sort of slime-like entrance of barstool sports culture into actual reporting journalism. And there are a lot of other problems with ESPN that I like. And, and, and like, I'm not saying that we shouldn't watch ESPN, but like Pat McAfee's, is a problem that I particularly take exception to because like my problem with him isn't that he's loud or that he only wears like sleeveless shirts. My problem with him is that I don't think he's good at his job or he has anything interesting to say. And because he's bad at his job and he's not a journalist and he doesn't have anything intelligent to say about his job, he's sloppy. Right. And so that's the problem. It's not that he's a bad person. He may or may not be, I don't care. Right. Like, you get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to do something at the top level, do it at a top level. And it's just like in the same way that Lee Corso just doesn't have it right now and can't do it anymore. Even though Lee Corso has forgotten more about how to be a a broadcaster than Pat McAfee has ever known. It's okay to say that Pat McAfee shouldn't be doing this because he's sloppy at it. He's bad at it. Like if I was as good at teaching as Pat McAfee is at sport broadcasting, I wouldn't have a job, right? And I don't think he signed back up for college game day next year, so that's fine. We're not going to deal with this going forward. But, and I know that I just said, I don't want to make this a Pat McAfee thing, and then I just, like, talked for two minutes about how much I hate him. But my more general point was just, like, there is a, there is a reason to try to do things the right way and get your research right, I know that it seems like in this show that we just say whatever word comes into our mouths. But if you can imagine how bad it would be without this, this is actually the organized version of the show that you're hearing. (laughs) This is the show with like notes and research behind it. You can't even imagine what off the cuff chapel bell curve would be. It's, it's pure anarchy. Yeah. It's hell. You don't want that. And I think that this is a good example of that, of how when you don't have that organizational principle behind your work, that things fall downhill. Anyway, I don't know. I don't even know. I don't have no takeaway from this. I'm not saying that you can't do the drunk, obnoxious Georgia fan thing. I'm just saying, like, think about your local red coat. Especially if you're on ESPN. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. If you're in toppers, I don't care. I don't know why you would be doing the Georgia Chan at toppers, but whatever. If you're at, I think I meant to say cutters. Cutters is open, but toppers is also the correct answer as it is. The strip club. If you're at Top Golf in Roswell, do whatever <laughs> you want to do. But if you're a national broadcaster on ESPN, get it right. Anyway, let's go around the league. I'm going to do some other ones of these because I know that you have one in all caps here that you want to land on. <laughs> so there's two big national stories we're going to hit at the end of this. We got Texas A&M and Michigan. But before we do this, a couple of things I saw around the league. Penn State's offense is embarrassing and bad. They fired their offensive coordinator. They obviously should. That was correct. Um, Let's see. Somebody's getting left out of the CFP. There are just like too many teams. There are, I think, 10 teams that are uh, 10 or five teams that are 10 and 0 right now. And then there are other teams that can play their way in contention. So you've got like Ohio State, Michigan, Florida State, Washington, Oregon, Texas, UGA, Bama, 
all have a shot. And there are only four spots. So the idea that UGA is going to be able to take a loss and still get into the playoff, I don't think that holds water. I think we have to win out. But I could be wrong. Um, this is also, we are we are in the midst of hot stove season. And it's not just Texas A&M. Texas A&M fired Jimbo Fisher. They have to immediately pay, I think, $20 million of what will eventually be a $75 million buyout it's going to cost over 150 million dollars to replace the staff when you get to the end of it probably maybe upwards of 200 which is buck wild uh to make the texas of it all even more texas i don't know if you saw this yara at halftime of the game on saturday before they fired him on sunday the booster corps gave this giant check for 160 million dollars to the athletic department at halftime and then they fired him and we're like yeah fine we can pay the 75 mil that don't mean anything and apparently they were already planning on doing it. So that means they just, this, this was like the scene in The Godfather where they kill all the heads of the crime families. They, they knew they were going to kill him. I mean, I'm not upset about it. Like, that's fine. <clears throat> but there are also all sorts of other firings going on. Uh, the coaching carousel has started. Let's see, just to briefly go through. It's my favorite time of year because yeah. it's... There's drama in college football, which are two things that I enjoy observing. All right. So you've got Northwestern. Obviously, that was the beginning of the year. Michigan State, that already happened uh, with Mel Pucker and Pat Fitzgerald. You've got Texas A&M. Um, Andy Avalos at Boise State got fired because they weren't very good. Zach Arnett at Mississippi State got fired, which is kind of sad, but I get it. I mean, he he's replacing Mike Leach, who died. It just wasn't good. Um, let's see. Then we also had a forced retirement where I believe Brady Hoke at San Diego State got like let out to pasture. And then let's can we see. pause? How do you oh, force Sam somebody to retire? Well, yeah. So basically, I'm going to make sure I'm saying this right because. Do you just like go up to somebody and tell them point blank, hey, you're old, it's time to go? Like, yeah, so Brady Hoke had been at San Diego State and then he was at Michigan. They came back to San Diego State and it just, he'd been re- doing really well. But then, and he turned the program back around. But then the last couple of years, they'd just fallen off. And so basically, he's already at retirement age and they just went to him and said, like, publicly, they announced he retired of his own volition. It is generally assumed that they went to him and said, it is time to retire. Like, we don't want to fire you. Don't make us fire you. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Word. Then you also have uh, Sam Pittman was fired at Arkansas. I believe that happened today as we record this. Come back oh home, God, Sam Pittman. Wait. Be our offensive line coach. T. That's like SEC. Yeah. That's like the region. Yeah. The region as if. So there are already two. There are already two or three SEC jo- jobs open right now, Mississippi State, uh, Arkansas, and Texas A&M. And because there are some high-paying jobs open, it's also possible that there will be another job open, which would be Ole Miss, because Lane Kiffin likes to flirt with jobs that pay a lot of money. And Lane Kiffin will put his name into the hat for Texas A&M, whether or not his name is in the hat. Uh, I am also – I saw there was a report that got put on our Discord early on Twitter – that apparently Gus Malzahn is the is the head front runner for the job at Arkansas, which would make a lot of sense because Gus Malzahn actually got a start in Arkansas at a big uh, public or 
private Arkansas high school. That was where he came from before he went to Auburn. So I think that's about all the hot stove stuff we had. Oh, yeah. Also, the last two stories, LOL. First of all, Michigan's head coach, Brian John Harbaugh, got – I almost said Brian Harbaugh. What, what is that? Anyway, John Harbaugh got suspended until the end of the regular season for the next three games. Michigan beat Penn State anyway because Penn State doesn't have an offense designed for any time after 1892. But it is really funny because John Harbaugh has taken it in the most Harbaugh way possible. Am I saying John? That's his brother. Jim Harbaugh has taken it in the most Michigan way possible, which is that he is A, refusing to talk about it, then B, continuing to talk about it, and then C, he somehow in, in the same sound clip also implied that Michigan was America's team, which what the fuck could that possibly be true? Are you serious? Is Michigan's America's team? Everybody but Michigan hates Michigan. That's like saying that the Yankees are America's team. Sure, a lot of people like them because they've been good and they have like a famous brand name, but like, come on now. I would I would argue that I like Ohio State over Michigan, and that says a lot. But like... It nowhere, n- nowhere is Michigan America's team. Also, I would like to add that I think the three sus- the three game suspension is stupid and doesn't do anything, and it's giving like, God. Recently, in F one, leave it to me to con- like put these two crazy things together. Recently, Toto Wolf, Mercedes's team principal in F one, was like sidelined for a while because he went to the hospital, and he literally just like called up everybody in the middle of a race because Mercedes was making such shit decisions and just making the like calls on the phone. That's exactly what he. That's exactly what Harbaugh's gonna fucking do. Like this doesn't serve as a punishment, and they did something really fucking serious. Like. I I just don't get it. I don't get it and I don't understand. And like putting my, you know, general distaste for Michigan aside, I think that the punishment needs to be more severe and swift before Harbaugh inevitably goes to the NFL. That's just my take though. I don't know. I agree. Thanks. Yeah, totally. All right. So let's talk about the actual game we came here to talk about and Go through our experiences of the Ole Miss Georgia game. Why don't you start us out? Okay. Um, happy senior day, Nathan. Uh, Kaylee and I. Okay, so I went. I woke up at like God, 11, 10 or eleven on Saturday, and I'm going to be so real. I was. I woke up still drunk, dude. It was fucking crazy, and I remembered that Kaylee was supposed to be coming over at around like twelve or so. And my room was a mess. So I was cleaning up my room, drunk as fuck. And I took an everything shower, really peaceful, brought me back to my senses-ish. And then we just got ready and we decided to go over to campus a little bit early so we could make the most of, you know, our last home game as students, which I'm going to get emotional if I, if I keep referring to it as that. But there was this um, stand, like, right in front of Tate and the MLC, like, that whole area. There was this Estee Lauder pop-up. Um, I don't know much about makeup. I wasn't really allowed to wear makeup until I got to college. So I – and even now, like, I don't understand eyeliner. I don't understand half of this shit. I just throw on some mascara and call it a day. But I went to this Estee Lauder pop-up 
and it was sensory fucking overload. Like, it was so loud. And they shoved iPads in my face and were like, this is your foundation color. And it was not. And God, it was just so scary. So after that experience, um, Kaylee and I went into Tate to like try and decompress. I had my first meal in over 48 hours, which was Panda Express. Not in like a bad way, but I just kind of forgot to eat. It's not, it's not a big deal. But that happened. And then we walked over to, oh, we just walked around some more. Um, Twisted Tea had a pop-up, but they didn't have any alcohol, which was a little unfortunate. Um, They did give us wristbands to prove that we are over the age of 21, though. So, and I still have mine on. I don't know why we needed that. But I do have a picture that they took of us along with some other pictures on our notes, which you can access for $5 or more at patreon.com forward slash chapel bell curve. Boom. Then we got into line at 3.30, an hour and a half before the gates opened, because one thing about me is I will always be in the front row at the student section. Um, We got in. We sat down. Uh, chilled out. Chanted the red coat chant as the red coats walked in correctly. Saw Nathan. Bestie time. Uh, then it was kickoff and god i i had a time at um the game because i was crying a lot i have a lot of emotions about football and when when brock is announced as starter i cried um in the middle of the first quarter i cried just very emotional for no fucking reason it's not that deep um i i eventually went up to go get a glizzy and a drink. And one thing about the drinks at Sanford is they only sell them in the souvenir cups. So you're forced to buy the souvenir cup for seven fucking dollars, which may not be a lot to some people, but I'm on a college budget, guys. That's a lot to me. And so I had my $7 Diet Coke and it was fucking freezing for no reason. I had two layers on and I was still cold. Granted, they were like, it was a long sleeve red t-shirt and a crop top. So how, how cold could I be but I got into my seat and I like was shivering because it's cold and I spilled my fucking diet coke everywhere and also ketchup got on my hand from my glizzy so now I'm you know soaking wet because it's raining I have diet coke all over me and also like I have ketchup on my hand and I'm crying and shit is just surreal like I'm having an out-of-body experience and I also get some fucking diet coke on Kaylee which I still feel awful about even though she told me like a million times it's okay um but fuck it we ball right we end up winning I I cry again duh and Kaylee and I walk back to my place I've shot all of the nerves in my foot for some reason because I walked like I ended up walking five miles or some ridiculous number and we get back home and I'm like okay time to relax my friend texts me out of nowhere and is like, hey, are you going out tonight? Like, I'm going to get FOMO if I don't go out. Fuck it, we ball. I end up going out. We go to Sake Mama. The cover is fucking crazy. But I just smile and then I get in. And yeah, and then I make some new friends and I end, and who happen to be German. Um, And I end up in this apartment with like six German people that are my age. And we are all just getting to know each other and having a good time. And I'm going to end my story there. But yeah, how was your experience, Nathan? I do want to just do a couple of quick Gen Z uh, slang checks with you. Oh, now, okay. one of them, 
one of them is a word I already know, but I would like you to explain it for our audience. What yeah. is a glizzy? A glizzy is a hot dog. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. That's I knew that, but I just want to make sure that they knew that. Second, I I have a bone to pick with the Gen Z generation. It, this is not really serious. This is a joke. But okay. if you are referring to twisted T's sort of slangily and you want to shorten it down to one syllable, what do you call it? A twee? A twee. Here's my problem with that. <laughs> twee is already a word. What does it mean? It's an adjective that means excessively or effectively quaint, pretty, or sentimental. If you call something twee, you're saying that it's like over-the-top saccharine sweet. Dude, I looked up twee and I got two results. I got trading with the enemy act, which is an act that gives the president the power to restrict trade between the U.S. and its enemies in it's times two of war. E's. It's two E's. Two E's. Two T-W-E. Oh. Like, like we, but with a T on it. See, now I have your word. Okay. All right. I don't think you're correct. Twee is twee is not a real word, and I don't know what you're talking about. It's time to gaslight you out of that word. Here's here's what twee is. Have you ever seen the show? Have you ever seen anything that Zoe Deschanel does? Isn't she a new girl? Yeah. Have you seen New Girl? Yes. Yeah. L- Jess from New Girl is twee. She's like so cute. It's kind of annoying. It's like a fashion thing. It's like an aesthetic thing. Like over the top. So like camp core. That's just camp core. Camp core with like a little bit less irony. Because camp core implies that you know you're being ironic. But the whole thing about twee is that like maybe you're doing it seriously. Like if okay, you if you did, core? Nah, it's like if you did camp core, but that was just how you're dressed, you weren't in on the joke. You know what I mean? I mean, in theory, yes. But to me, twee is just the the beverage or trading with the enemy act. <laughs> I hate that so much. But anyway, so my game, I was pretty sick. I still am. I'm going to have to go through this pretty arduously and cut out all the sounds of me swallowing my own spit. But And so I'm sorry if I missed one. There was a whole thing where the Sousa section had a, not altercation, but it, it was a Sousa section versus Estee Lauder. A sort of situation because we do the Sousa show right behind where that same Estee Lauder pop-up was that you were talking about before and they were blasting music and they were blasting what I would define as like Sephora pop like dance pop like glitzy dance pop with the bass really jacked so it was really really loud and that was okay because so were sousaphones and I walked through with the sousaphones and I paused and I was like hey we're about to play. It's going to be really loud. You might want to turn the music down. And the girl is like, I don't know if we can. I'll have to talk to a director. And it was not her fault. She had no control over it. But I was like, okay, I'm just telling you. It's totally all right. But it's going to get pretty loud. And so we go over there and we line up. And the music doesn't get turned off. And I'm like, okay, well, we're all standing here. It's pretty obvious that we're here. There's 30 of us holding horns. Like, what's going on? And I look back over and they're just moving on as normal. And I was like, okay, so we have to get their attention. But I don't want to, I only have so many like cartridges in the in the, the revolver, you know? I don't want to shoot my shot and waste it. So I just had them play Choker until they turned the music off. 
I was just like play choker and the music was still on after they played it. And I was like, okay, play it again. And the music was still on. And then on the third time through, they got it and turned the music down and then everything went better. But it, it is proof that if you just play loud enough, that things will go your way. That's sort of the Sousa approach to life. I, I'm going to outplay this and not in terms of talent, but in terms of just sound. It was also senior day. I always get emotional on senior day. I always say I'm not going to get emotional on senior day. And then it sneaks up on me. Uh, for me, my emotional moment was when I went up for Battle Hymn with the Battle Hymn soloist, Audrey. Audrey's been a Battle Hymn soloist for three years, and I've been escorting her up to do Battle Hymn solos the whole time. And she's also done some Battle Hymn solo gigs that we had to walk to together. So we've done Battle Hymn together, like in Atlanta, in the Tabernacle, and in Mercedes Benz, and in Los Angeles, and in Miami, or whatever. And so. It was just like a really emotional thing to see her do it for the last time. And her whole family's there and and they were crying. And I was like, I'm not going to cry. And then she finished and she turned and she's just bawling. And then I was like, oh, well, now I'm crying. And it just kind of happened. Um, it was a very emotional day. They had the Veterans Day performance. And, you know, here's what I'll say. I'm not normally one for excessive displays of patriotism. And... I do think that we tend to sort of like fetishize people who have been in the military, like in, in, in the sense of like, we make hay and we make sort of cultural capital out of their suffering and their trauma, which to them is just their trauma and not something for us to get anything out of. But I will say that like, I think the way that UGA does Veterans Day is pretty cool, or at least good, the good version of it. And the Rodcoats put together a very, very good Veterans Day show in like three practices, played in Armed Forces Mayor, uh, Medley, played Amazing Grace and America the Beautiful. Timothy Miller was there to sing America the Beautiful. And then we were joined by a special guest conductor, who Jim McGarity, who is a 31-year veteran drum major of Pershing's Own, which is the U.S. the official U.S. Army band. I don't know. I mean, it was it was a cool moment. You know, it was they had all the like people from Georgia who had won the purple heart who were still alive there. And they had all of these ROTC kids who were there who had gotten recognized or whatever. And like, I tend to be somewhere between low key critical and openly hostile to the military industrial complex writ large. But I don't think that that means that you can't say, Hey, it's good to say that these people deserve to be, recognized for doing something extraordinary right and so i don't know it was a pretty emotional time and then i turned and i saw holly Rowe, the sideline reporter for espn was sitting there and watching timothy miller sing and then watching the redcoats play mason grace and she was just crying and i i mean i hope i'm not like revealing any a really personal moment for her but it was it was kind of cool to see the redcoats play and have it have such like a stark effect on the crowd like everybody was quiet you know and I just really dug that. I really, I don't know. It's cool when there is a mass outpouring of emotion about something that is generally positive. You know, I lived through the post 9-11 American experience and saw a lot of mass outpouring emotions that were ultimately pretty destructive and probably pretty destructive for the people who were having those emotions. And so... I'm always kind of weary of it, but I thought that on Saturday it was a pretty good scene. 
I had a Yara sighting and that was cool. Uh, Yara, I think there's always, when you see Yara at a game, you play this game in your head, or at least I do, where it's like, is Yara just being Yara or is Yara drunk? And this one felt like just Yara being Yara more than it felt like Yara being drunk. The first home game that you were at, that was drunk Yara. Oh, I was, that was so like wasted, dude. Fully manifested drunk Yara. Like, like Yara is dead. Drunk Yara is like, like I felt like at the first game, you were like a ride-along consciousness and drunk Yara had taken over your body, like Bernie, like weekend at Bernie style. But I felt like I saw just, yeah, it's okay. Don't worry. It's an 80s movie that's even before my time. Don't worry about it. <clears throat> that's like a reference I would make to my dad's generation so that they would think I was cool. It's not like a my generation reference. Yeah, yeah okay. You see what I'm saying? <clears throat> anyway, uh, we also Rickrolled Sanford. And this is something that I got a request to talk about how that went down. So before the Missouri game, Brett wrote this thing called Glory, Glory, Spooky Land. And I think the original idea was for it to be kind of like an October trick-or-treat thing, you know. But then we were playing Ole Miss, and I think part of the inspiration was that, like, oh, well, it's Lane Kiffin. And Lane Kiffin is, like, the biggest troll in the world. So if we're winning big, we're going to play this. And what it is is it's just Dixieland, or Glory Glory is what we call it, that we play after the touchdowns and extra points sometimes. It's like this, like, upbeat, like, jazz version of Glory. And then like right in the middle of it, it just like bursts into never going to give you up. And then it goes back into the ending of glory, glory. And it's actually kind of hard. Oh, it goes <laughs> crazy. Because it does go crazy, but it's also hard to play because there's like, it's the same tempo, but there's like a feel shift because never going to give you up is this like straight four, four rock beat. Right. And Glory, glory is in four, but it's felt in two. It's like in cut time. And it's this like jazz, like syncopated feel. And everything is like in the drums. It's like very single stick, like old school jazz. And so the first few times we played it, it was really funny because usually if the Redcoats play something and they've played it before a lot, like a school song, it's usually at least okay. And then you just have to get it from okay to good, right? Or it's good and you have to get it to great. And so I haven't heard the Redcoats just fall apart on any version of Glory Glory in a long time. But the first version we played, the first time we played the Rickroll version, it just completely combusted. And I think part of that was because they like couldn't believe what they were playing. Like there was a sense in which Brett had just forced them to Rickroll themselves. And that was really funny. But Excellent. yeah, I, it, I hope that we bring it back. Honestly, like I have no control over what we play in this sense. But if it were up to me, we would play it like three or four times a year, just at random times or anytime we're up big and we're just bored. We just play Glory, Glory, Spooky Land. So that's me. Oh, yeah. Now it's time for our quantitative segment. We've got some stats. We've got some numbers. We've got some observations. It's funny because this is going to be one that is simultaneously really easy to talk about and in, in the sense that a lot of good things happened and there's some interesting things we can look at in terms of going forward and the CFP and the SEC championship. But then also statistically, we just kind of beat their ass. So there's also not a lot to say about it in, ter in terms of the, the game, the, the down to down performance. So 
I'm going to run through some stats. Stop me at any time. Raise your hand if you need me to stop. I, I don't know why you would do that like you were a high school student, but whatever. So, <laughs> do you have your hand raised, Miss? Yes. <laughs> you already have your hand up? I haven't even started. Yes, I have something to say. Okay, go, go. I think when, just to start us off, um, we know that Georgia has not had that dog in them for a little bit of the season. Yeah. I said that very Canadianly. But um, we haven't had that dog in us for a little bit of the season. But I think whenever Georgia sees a silly little number um, right in front or behind a team, I feel like we like have this alter ego similar to my drunk alter ego that just comes out, you know? And I think that that happened. We saw a funny little number next to, on top of that, a low number next to Ole Miss. And we were like, "Mm, it's time to kick their ass. And kick their ass we did. That's all I have to say. And it was a pretty, I think, demonstrative ass kicking from pretty much any standpoint you want to look at it. I think to find interest in these stats for me as a Georgia fan, you have to look at Georgia's performance and what it presages about the rest of the, the season. But if you want to talk about comparative stats, I mean, we we just like just about dropped an ass whooping on him. I and mean, we had 0.5 EPA per play. That's in the 99th percentile. Every time this, we snapped the ball, on average, we added half a point to our final score. That's God. unhinged production. It's like kind of impossible. We had a 67% success rate. We had a 9.47 yards per play. That's the 98th percentile. 0.49 EPA per drop back. That's the 90th percentile. 0.5 EPA per rush. That's the 97th percentile. 10.72 yards per drop back. It's the 96th percentile. Hold on a second. You ever drop so many hard stats you have to take a breather because your body can't keep up? Because I think that's just what happened. Yeah, this is like a shonen anime where my body can't contain my powers, my stat powers. They're over 9,000. They are over 9,000. <laughs> we had a 12% explosive play rate by EPA, which is in the 86th percentile. And we had, the, we had a 63% third down success rate, which is in the 93rd percentile. But we were only forced to convert like three third downs the whole game. That's stupid. And in fact, the only thing we didn't really do well was stuff the run. But by the time that that mattered, it didn't matter because we were up so much that they couldn't really run it anymore. And even then, we didn't stuff the run very well against Quinshawn Judkins at all. But we did hold them to a very high stop run percentage. Uh, 26% of their runs were stopped. Uh, 6% were stuffed. Interestingly enough, in terms of Georgia running the ball... We actually had a pretty high stopped and stuffed run percentage. A full 43% of our runs gained fewer than or equal to two yards. But it didn't matter because when we hit, we hit big. 48% of our runs, 20 of the times that we ran, went over four yards. Uh, The average over four yard was about 1.7. So our average big run was at least five or six yards. And we did that half the time. So any of the stopped runs and the stuffed runs didn't really matter at all. Uh, I think situationally we played really well, converted a bunch of uh, second downs, second and longs, and made third downs irrelevant. Um, We 
did a really remarkably good job of shutting down what could be what it has been a pretty prolific pass offense. And I think a lot of that came from the fact that it was very difficult for them. That is Ole Miss to run any play action convincingly. And part of that was because we got really consistent pressure. We never really let Jackson Dart get comfortable the whole night. We pressured him constantly. We got in his face constantly. We put him in the ground several times. We had 16 pressures, two sacks, two hits, 12 quarterback hurries. On true pass plays, we had, I think, of those 16 pressures, like six of them came on true pass sets. So we were in his face the whole night. To give you a standard of comparison, on the night, Jackson Dart, before he got knocked out of the game, and I believe the third quarter, on a pretty gnarly hit, by the way, Jackson Dart had 21 dropbacks. He was pressured on 16 of those. I was going to say I recently saw on a few websites um, after the game that Lane Kiffin said that Jackson Dart could have come back, um, which, I mean, Lane Kiffin goes say what Lane Kiffin goes say, but like... That is true. God, if I'm... Again, I'm not a professionally trained, like, NCAA athlete. I don't know shit. But, like, that looked like a really bad hit, dude. I don't know if I believe that he could have come back. Mm-hmm. It just looked like shit. I, and obviously, like, I hope he feels better. It wasn't dirty, but it definitely hurt. Like, in, ter- in terms of, like, he looked really injured. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I don't know. Again, I'm a little bit of a wuss when it comes to getting injured. Like, I... I always get hurt some when I was when I played soccer, I would always get hurt and always get so emotional about it. I'm just very prone to injury. So that could just be that bias. But Mm, no, I mean, it was it was a pretty big pop. We still whoop their ass even before the injury, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably why he didn't come back. He might have meant, hey, if we had pressed him, he could have come back. But defensively, the story of the game was probably to me, CJ Allen. I thought that he looked really rough at times to start and he gave up a couple of big uh, completions at the very beginning of the game but as he settled in he we saw sort of a blossoming of a really good player does he always know where he's going absolutely not God but he's gonna go there fast and I respect that he gives me big like early Roquan Smith energy like he's just running to places fast. Sometimes he runs to the wrong place fast, but sometimes he ta- he gets a sack or a tackle for loss. I think he's going to be a real, uh, once he figures out where he's supposed to be, he's going to be a real weapon. He's just really excited to play football, dude. And I can, yeah, he, I understand that. He plays inside linebacker like a Labrador who's finally been let loose at the dog park. He's just got a lot of energy. Does he always know where he's going? No, but that's all right. I thought that. Damon Wilson really came into his own 35. He's an outside linebacker. He really looked really good in the pass rush. I thought uh, the whole day, Tyke Smith, man, I'm going to miss him. He's so good. I thought that our, our in general defensive backfield looked really good. I have been pretty critical at times of Dalen Everett. And even though I think he gave up like three, three completions on three targets, I thought that for the most part, he held up pretty well in the back. I mean, he was going against people who he was going against receivers that have fielded a really excellent passing attack, 
generally speaking, this year. And he held up really well. And, you know, outside of Tyke Smith, Carmari Lasseter, I don't know. He's just the current lockdown cover corner. Just put him on the best guy and he'll take care of it. I mean, that's all that's that's pretty much all it is. Like Kamari Lasseter just doesn't give up completions. He gave up three receptions on five targets for 45 yards the whole game. That's really good, dude. Against that offense. Yeah, I'm I'm really really excited to have him going forward. I thought that the defensive line sort of saw a youth movement and that was really impressive. And we, I think have seen, we're starting to see some guys come into their own who are younger players on the inside. And this is the kind of defense that when, in, when interior players start to play better, things go better for us. So like Jonathan Jefferson, I thought looked really good. I thought that uh, Jamal Jarrett, who came in as a nose tackle, number 55. He looked quite good. Number 44, whose name I cannot remember, Jordan Hall. <clears throat> At times, he looked like he got beat, but I thought that he really was coming along pretty well, actually. I think that if we are, we are never going to have a Jordan Davis on this team, but if we just have a sort of 60% of Jordan Davis in the inside, this is going to be a really strong defense going forward. Michael Williams, I think, continues to really impress. He is just a really good player, dude. He is, per PFF, I think he was like the in the top 10 ranked defensive players on the team this week. But also, I thought that he just is yeah, number 13 inside, a really, a really disruptive guy. Nazir Stackhouse, number 78. Warren Brinson, number 97. They just continue to be workmanlike. There are times where they really flash, but they never get blown off of their blocks. And that's really important in this defense. That's about all I have in terms of what this says about us going forward. I mean, to me, this looked like a team that can win the national title. I mean, I think that I actually feel like one of the bigger blocks in the way of us winning the national title at this point is not so much who we would play in the CFP. It's getting past Alabama. If you can get past Alabama, I think you can be, I think you can win. I really do. If you get past Alabama, it's a lock, I think. And that's not what I would have said at the beginning of the season. We, I think, I remember Ross or somebody tweeting a while ago, um, there's like a very slim chance for UGA to, like the way that they're playing now, there's a very slim chance of them even going to the playoff, let alone going to the Natty, you know? And I think, I don't know. I don't know if anybody saw that, but we've really we've really turned around since then as a team. Like, I'm, I've, I, I've been saying this for the entire season, but I've always been, I've always had a little bit of hope. I've always been a little delulu about us three-peating. And at times I did lose a little bit of hope. But honestly, after Saturday, I think... I mean, I, I know that we can, um, but it's still going to take a lot of work, you know, like we can't, we, we were, we showed up and showed out this Saturday, but we need to continue to play at that exact level, if not higher. And we can't revert back to beginning of the season, Georgia. I agree. That's, I think what I'm going to say. Yeah. So let's do some notes. What were your observations? 
I'm from the game. I'm ready to start my Brock Bowers for Heisman campaign. I'm ready, Nathan. Yeah. Elaborate. He's beautiful. He's perfect. He's an Iron Man. Do you have anything else? Yes. Okay. So, the Heisman qualifiers, like, you know, what makes somebody want to, or what makes somebody qualified to have the Heisman, I guess, besides unofficial stuff, like be a quarterback and be on a good team, or like be a good person and be about the ball and also about the life to, you know, simplify it, I guess. Um, I was a big proponent of Stetson winning the Heisman last year, and I still think, I still think in my soul that he should have won it. I still believe in that shit. And I think that Brock should win it this year. Because to come back from the injury that he came from and still want to play at Georgia, despite, you know, his even his representation telling him, hey, like, it's time to go. And him firing them and getting new representation and coming back in a record amount of time. I think he came back in like a shorter amount of time than two, if I'm not mistaken, which I could be. Um, I just think that exemplifies why he should win the Heisman. He has carried this team on his back. He's consistently shown that he is deserving of the Heisman, not just in performance, which I could go on and on about, but y'all have seen it. I've seen it. Like he, he got, he's got that fucking dog in him, but like off the field stuff too. Like the fact, again, the fact that he wants to come back, the fact that he's consistently leading this team. And the fact that he's pushing him in the right direction. He's a leader. He is, uh, he should be a Heisman candidate and he should be a Heisman winner. I'm on, I'm so fucking passionate about this. I will die on this hill. If he is not at least sent to New York, I will have considered it a disservice to college football as a whole. Thank you. Do you have anything else that you saw from the, the center of the student section in terms of on the field stuff? Gosh, the student section showed the fuck up. We were, okay, third quarter, fourth quarter, people started to leave, you know, because it was rainy and cold and a myriad of other reasons. But one thing I noticed about all of the student sections, not just the one like next to the red coats, but like by the opposite um, end zone as well, nobody left. Nobody walked away until the very end of the game. Um, and I think that says something to, as to like, what kind of fan base is growing here at Georgia versus what fan base we've had. I've always, you know, if I've, I've had some people come up to me and like, talk to me a little bit about what I do on the podcast. And, you know, besides the fact that I fucking love it here and Nathan, you're my buddy and everything. Like I'm on here because there have historically been only a few archetypes of fans that are or are only a few archetypes of college football fans you know like if you don't know every single thing about football or if you don't fit a certain physical characteristic then you're not like a college football fan and like when you look at me appearance wise I'm probably the last thing you expect to like the last person you'd think would be a, a rabid college football fan I'm like five six middle eastern it's not me you know, but the reason I'm on here is because, you know, everybody can be a college football fan. And we've talked about this before, but I think I really saw it at the Ole Miss game because 
everybody under the sun was in the student section. Everybody under the sun was screaming at the top of their lungs. The very first play of the game, that Ole Miss false start, like, that was because of the stadium. And that was because of us, specifically. We are changing the future of college football, and that's something that I'm really proud to be a part of. I don't know if that's, like, the summarization that you wanted. I mean, I liked everything I saw on the field, but no, that, that's the great. Mo- that's the perspective that I wanted. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. But yeah, I'm really happy that the co- the future of college football is as bright as what I saw at the Ole Miss game. What are your thoughts? I agree. I don't think that I've seen a, in terms of the crowd, I don't think I've seen a crowd at this hype since last year at Tennessee. And then before that, I mean, maybe like, I think that this wasn't quite 2017 Notre Dame, but it was it was up there. <clears throat> Let's see. Observations on the field. Carson Beck adds to this team's possibility of winning the Natty. Carson Beck can win this team a Natty. And I think he can do it sort of by putting the team on his back in some ways. He's, he has an incredible receiving, incredible receiving depth, but he is just a guy that we probably do not give enough credit to even us, even the people who are out here, like trying to hype him up. He's incredible. He made some really big time throws. That first touchdown to McConkie was just in a window. It was beautiful. He just looks so composed. He's not a runner, but he's athletic enough to get first downs when he needs to. I'm just like, I'm really, I'm, I really don't think that we're giving enough credit. And I've heard rumors that he might come back next year and that would be super hype. Having Bowers and McConkey healthy at the same time, per my eyes, is like essential going forward to winning a national title because I think that this is a good offense without either one of them. But if you have both of them, this is a basically unguardable pass offense. I also think that complementing that is that it seems like that A, having Xavier Truss and Amarius Mims back has done wonders for the run blocking on this team. And B, that Kendall Milton has kind of finally figured out, and I think we finally figured out how to use Kendall Milton, which is to basically point him at a pl- a spot on the line, like in his own blocking scheme, and have him get his pads down. He looked so effective, and I think part of that was that he doesn't have to juke, he doesn't have to use vision, he just like picks a hole and hits it, and he's strong enough that that's enough. I'm proud of him for fighting through it. He's been injured throughout his time. And I think that he and Dejan together can be an effective complement to what I think is one of the most underrated pass offenses in the nation. We're not going to get the same hype because we don't have a Marvin Harrison Jr. We don't have a I don't big name wide receiver the way that Washington does or the way that Texas does. They have one of our big name wide receivers, but whatever. Or the way you know Keon Coleman at Florida State is. But I do think that we are, in many ways, as difficult to guard as those teams that have the Keon Coleman's and the Marvin Harrison Juniors. I have said in the past that I think that you know Dale and Everett has to step up, and I thought that he looked okay. He gave up some dumb balls. He had a pass interference called against him that shouldn't have been called, but I thought he looked really good. And and if he can just be. Above average, I think Kamari Laster is good enough and that the talent around him is good enough that this is a very strong defensive secondary. The only note I had from the flow of the game was that I thought it was really funny that old 
the Ole Miss kicked that field goal there at the very end to go up to go make it like 17 to 52 because that was such a surrender Cobra. I really do think that was that was Lane Kiffson saying, hey, I'm going to make this easy for us. Don't throw the ball when you get the ball back. And the funniest thing about it was that we didn't throw the ball and we still we ran it like eight times and then scored another touchdown on the second team when we got the ball back. So anyway, that that was I don't know, it was a really fun game. It's been a long time since we went to a game since we had a game that was that level of hype. And I know from the outside it did not live up to that level of hype. Like if you were watching it as a neutral party, it was not fun. But for me personally, it was great. It was nice to watch a game and not want to kill myself in the middle of it. And not at any like, time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't even feel like anything. Not once did I feel like I really needed to like hunker down, hunker down. You know, I was hunkering down, but I wasn't like hunkering down. Do you want to take us out? Do you want to do the outro and the intro? Oh my God, I would love to. I'm guys, I'm for real growing up. I'm going to graduate next. Ugh, I'm not saying that. Never mind. I'm growing up. This has been Chapel Valkyrie. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere you can subscribe to a podcast. You can also get in touch with us on literally every single social media platform, even fucking Mastodon. You name it, I have established an account for us on it. I'm so serious. Um, and also, if you don't like social media, come email us at chapelbellcurve at gmail.com. If you like what you've heard today, please give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get them. I went through our Apple reviews yesterday, and I forgot that I wrote one like a few months ago, and it was so funny to look at. If you would like to support this podcast monetarily, come check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash chapelbellcurve. And if, uh, I guess that's it. We will catch you not in the classic city. I will, I will be, but probably not Nathan. And until I'll be in then, Columbus, Ohio, boo, Columbus, Ohio. I'm going there for a conference. Why are you in Ohio? I'm going, Ew. I got invited to present at the national conference for the teachers of English. Anyway, until then. Oh, that's lit. It Go is. dogs. Go dogs. <laughs> <laughs>